Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Alston, allegedly the highest market town in England, over the Pennine watershed, and I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hi there, David. Yes, I came over the Tyne Gap via uh, Brampton. Whereas you've come over the heart side from, from Penrith. So we're in uh, a different part of Cumbria. In fact, before 1974, this was Cumberland. Yeah. Next year, this is going to be Westmoreland. Would you believe that? Is that right? Yeah. Ah, right, <laughs> okay. Well, that's um, slightly confused the geography, but it's a fascinating part of Cumbria. It feels a world apart, really. This is much more Pennine in nature, isn't it? It's a world of its own. Its tendril links are probably stronger with the Tyne yeah. and to the east and with Durham. It was the lead and the silver here that pulled the Romans here and has sustained a, a connection with the economy of this region until a hundred years ago, really. Today, Alston, largely known in walking circles for its association with the Pennine Way. The Pennine Way goes through it. Also, the Pennine Journey, Wainwright's infamous route, made famous these days by David and Heather Pitt. And I think it's on the Pennine Odyssey, Ron Scholes. Right, oh well, I think that, that's imminent. I think it's being published next month. It's something he's been working on for the last 50 years. Which really is an odyssey. So we've got three trails, and that gives us a nice lead-in to the subject of today's podcast and the walk we're going to be doing, Mark, on this very breezy day. There is another long-distance footpath that goes through Alston. Yes, it's a very intimate regional trail, called the Isaacs Tea Trail. It's 37 miles long. Could be done, I suppose, in three or four days, but it's a sort of walk that you don't want to race and you want to just keep coming back to. And today we're coming back to speak to the man who created the route, Roger Morris. Isaacs Tea Trail, a fascinating little loop wonder of these wonderful landscapes, these Pennine landscapes, Created in memory of, uh, in recognition of, in celebration of, uh, a fascinating gentleman who walked from farmhouse to farmhouse way back in the early 19th century selling tea. That's right. But also a charitable man as well, I think, Mark. Isaac was an impassioned fighter for the poorer people of this area. So we're going to talk a little bit about the trail. We're going to talk a little bit about this uh, man, fascinating man who rose from very humble roots to become uh, really a pillar of the community, a great walker himself. Um, But we'll also stop off at a few points en route. I know we've got an incredible Roman fort that we're going to pass by. You've mentioned one of our guests. We've got a second as well I can see over there. Who's our second guest, Mark? Anne Lucas, who... Listeners may have remembered her when she presented ITV on the border. So she's somebody with a strong sense of people in the landscape. Wonderful. Well, look, I can see uh, the two of them over there just by the church. And I believe there's some bells that we're waiting for as well. So let's go and meet them and let's relish this Sunday morning, this breezy Sunday morning atmosphere in Alston. 
we've made our way over the Pennine watershed to Alston, the very distinctive Pennine town. It's a very breezy day and I'm actually in the churchyard in the company of two guests today. Our first guest is Roger Morris. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Roger? Well, I've um, been coming up to Alston since the mid-1970s when I moved to this area as a student and been captivated by the beauty of the landscape round here and also the rich heritage that it has, very closely associated with lead mining, which goes back to prehistory. And linked to that was the fondness for walking and the great outdoors and over a process of the last 20 odd years or so have developed a walking trail known as Isaac's Tea Trail which follows an itinerant tea seller whose family hailed from Alston Moor and the Allen Valleys. This is what we're doing today, walking a section of that route. Also with me is Anne Lucas. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself Anne? Yeah, I live in the Tyne Valley and I've driven up here today. It's a glorious drive always to a glorious spot. I write a blog about Isaac's Tea Trail. I've been doing it since October 2015. I should stress I'm not a strong walker and Isaac's Tea Trail is 37 miles, some of it quite steep, but I'm doing the trail in very short sections. It's the kind of easy approach to Isaac's Tea Trail and I've just loved every minute of it. It's the nature of the route that you don't have to do it in great swathing strides. It's an intimate journey through a wonderful landscape. And uh, in the background you may hear the beginning of the bells of the church. Where are we going today, Roger? Give us a clue. Well, where we are now, virtually in the centre of Olsen, we're just going to join the Pennine Way from Isaac's Tea Trail to go a short section down the South Tyne Valley, which then will connect with the Roman fort of Epiarchum, and then we're going to drop down over a super bridge built by the County Council recently, a bridge that was lost, over to Kirkhoff and the church there, which is very special too. So it gives us a sort of five-mile circuit. That's correct, yeah. And in the background, the Carillion bells of the church. Such an authentic sense of place when you hear those. It's a, it's a rare sound, uh, and we've chosen a Sunday specifically to do this walk. A breezy day with rain forecast, but you get this sense of a magical place. And I'm looking at the town in the background with the hills to the east of me, and there's doves on the rooftops. We're off now. We've come down the hill, uh, we've actually come to the railway station. The bells are just faintly still ringing in the background. A wonderful ambience in this setting. Could you give us a little bit of a sense of the Isaac's Tea Trail? What was the story that led you towards this uh, trail? An individual by the name of Isaac Holden, whose family hailed from this part of the world, well, there's a long and honourable history of lead mine and mineral extraction in this part of the world, which even predates the Romans, where um, travellers from Europe and so on came in this direction in search of wealth and, and minerals. But it essentially peaked in the 18th century and the 19th century, and this was probably a global centre for lead mining innovation, 
extraction and so on. That didn't mean to say that was a, a straight line of progress and development all that time because the whole of the industry was subject to fluctuations. The period, particularly the early 1800s, was when the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars in France and the blockades and so on caused a very severe recession. The Holden family, which were just fairly uh, representative lead mining family, not only were they lead miners, but they were small farmers as well. And I think that's an integral and very important aspect of the unique character of the landscape in this part of the world. It's not just mines, it's the wonderful hay meadows, the dry stone walls, remains of lime kilns, etc. And the two aspects um, went hand in hand, known as the minor-farmer dual economy. The 1800s were a tough, very tough time. That was the era in which Isaac Holden, the tea seller, was born. He was from a particularly poor family. They seem to have prospered in the 18th century, but hit upon a very difficult time. A lean time. A lean time. And that, that accounted for essentially him leaving Alston Moor to find employment elsewhere. But before that, he had a, a short spell in the lead mining industry um, at Kearsley Well Mine, near to where he was born at Nine Banks. Um, the tea trail goes right past where he was born. And this is where the, the little kids were on what was called the washing floor of a lead mine, because the extracted rocks need to be sifted and sorted to look for the ore. Um, so it's water, it's, it's sieves, it's outdoors. Hideous, hideous job for little kids. Um, and this this was the job they did until they were old enough to go underground in the mine. In Isaac's case, lead mining failed on him, as it were, and he had to find another course of action. There was little option but to leave the area entirely. This part of the world has a long history of migration elsewhere. Or to seek a means of existence closer to hand. And... One of the options that emerged at that time was to become an itinerant tea seller. There was nobody actually doing that at that time. Uh, there were people doing it, but it was the bottom run in the ladder of salesmanship. It wasn't um, particularly lucrative, but it was the next best thing to the workhouse. It's not substantially different to what coal miners did in the 1980s, mm. took on an, another leases of, of life. He was of a particular temperament. He had a particular style of his own. He evolved that over time and was known as being quite eccentric. It focused itself in a particular way and his single-minded approach to tea selling for a start but he also combined this with philanthropy and that's a distinguishing feature from just being um, an interesting tea seller but he's also a fundraiser for a very wide range of community projects and the legacy of his projects still survive in this area which is comparatively untouched um, by you know, aspects of modernity, urbanisation and so on. Yeah, the tea trail actually follows Isaac's um, selling route, really, in, in some points. We've seen receipts of him selling tea at the farm doors. So he would go from farm to farm, way out on, on the hills, no Gore-Tex, no fleeces, all weathers, on foot, always on foot. Um, so the tea trail very cleverly links his customers and also the, the relics of his fundraising and the amazing 
good deeds that he did for the community. And obviously he did a bit of flirting at these farm doors because he met his future wife at Castlenook Farm. It might have been very tough early on and no doubt was tough throughout. But it also, a little bit later, coincided with changes in government policy in terms of taxation on tea. Instead of being a um, comparatively scarce, expensive commodity... Yeah, it became much more affordable in the 1840s. So that gave a huge impetus to the consumption of tea. I presume that meant that the local churches, the Methodists particularly, who are pretty strong in this area, they would turn to that as their response to inebriation of beer. There's a lovely quote that actually says, um, tea is the drink that cheers but does not inebriate. The context here I think we need to grasp is the origins of tea, not just as a a regular drink that everybody drank, it actually was very special. It's of Chinese origins um, and it's linked to the life of Charles I, Catherine de Braganza, and then it became in court and elsewhere amongst the wealthier people, uh, a sought-after luxury item. Over a period of time, it became more popular or available. You get some idea of it with the famous Boston Tea Party. But it was frustrated by the strong import duties, hence the popularity of smuggling. That was the background. And the free trade movement associated with the Liberals like Prime Minister Peel and so on saw opportunity to liberalise the um, import duties and that freed up import arrangements, particularly with China, which was the sole source of black tea. Of course, the Chinese developed the China willow pattern that went with it, and sort of so it was part and parcel of the whole thing. Porcelain and and so on, and it it had a much more insidious aspect to it as well, because it was um, also associated with the opium wars. We were foisting opium on the Chinese market in return for tea. So the tea comes from China. How does it come into this country specifically? Primarily through London and the ports, and to some extent even the northeast, because Tyneside was developing, Newcastle in particular. You think of the, the clipper ships. There was a huge premium on the speed of which you could get the earliest and best quality tea. But then the, um, the railway network enabled the um, distribution of tea to regional centres, particularly, again, the Newcastle area. Well, we've got a feeling for Isaac, his, his situation, his background, uh, and his discovery of some economic means of sustaining himself and his family. So, well, we walk a little bit further on this uh, route, uh, which actually follows a bit of the Pennine Way towards Epiarchum. Gosh, that's been a breezy old walk. Uh, we've walked with the Pennine Way from Alston. Uh, we've come through via Gildersdale into Northumberland. We've come to Epiarchum. On the maps you'll see it as Whitley Castle or Castle Nook Farm. Epiarchum is the Roman name for the fort here and it exists on the line of the Maiden Way, the Roman road which came over the Pennines, over Melmerby Fell from Kirby Thor, which was on the 
Eboracum to Lugia Valium main road, that is York to Carlisle. This maiden way that comes here was one of the earliest Roman roads during the establishment of Britannia. When the Romans came, they sought the primary resources and lead and silver for their coinage was very much an important thing. And you might say Hadrian's Wall is where it is because it defined that ownership of the resources. Anyway, we come here and I'm looking at a, a series of farmsteads to the south of the Roman fort. These are basils at the heart and they were first built in about 1600 when life became a little bit more secure and uh, stone farmhouses could be built. Domestic accommodation was in the first floor and livestock on the ground floor. The Scots were raiding in those times. The Reavers, so you've got these various uh, farmsteads there. The fort, the Roman fort, which is a diamond shape on the top of a drumlin, is unusual because on the west side, on the Pennine watershed side, there are a series of ramparts and the actual castle nook from which the farm took its name was a recess on the corner of the fort itself. So it's a nook, a little notch into the fort, hence the name. And the castle is a reference to the Roman fort, Epiarchum or Whitley Castle. Uh, it's a fort that's never been excavated and uh, Stuart Ainsworth <laughs> always said, over my dead body will this forever get excavated. It is such a treasure trove uh, of Roman history and much earlier history in the area because there's Bronze Age and Iron Age and all sorts of settlement in this area. It is British history in microcosm. And the view itself from here is distinctly Pennine. The uh, upper South Tyne Valley Looking west, I can just see the scarp of Crossfell, highest ground in the Pennine chain, a shade under 3,000 feet. But the hills around here are scarps with woodland and heather. The distinctive field boundaries are all there. It's human working landscape. It's the sort of place you want to get to know intimately. And that is what as its tea trail is all about, strictly. It gets people involved with an understanding of the times that Isaac was operating in. Can you remind me, Roger, how Isaac would have interacted with his customers? Well, the packmen, or people that moved goods and items around, were essentially like the white van man of our day. <laughs> they were the mechanism by which people literally got things brought to their door. Particularly, you can see here, the very dispersed farming communities and other places. The tea sellers, or uh, people like Isaac that were selling commodities like that, they carried on their back, and we know he carried his tea, wasn't wealthy enough to have a pony or a horse or anything like that, in something called a budget, a term still used in Yorkshire, probably up until the Second World War, where budgets were used for carrying milk. It was in many ways similar to a knapsack. Tea's a fairly light commodity right. as well, so we're not sagging at the knees. It's not difficult to budget. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was one for my listeners. I had to throw one in. Okay, keep them entertained. It's really windy today. I've been up here in all sorts of other conditions, and Isaac was walking these hills with his pack on his back. Um, I don't know what kind of waterproofing he had, thick tweed, I imagine. Um, literally walking these remote hills that we can see, knocking on farm doors selling his tea. He must have been an astonishing character, quite charismatic, I think. But actually, he was a little chap, barely over five foot. Crikey! Um, but very wiry, something more akin to a fell runner these <laughs> yes. days. He sounds like a Joss Naylor character. Yeah. We have this picture of this man who rambled around farmsteads and communities all over this area, trading and carrying out a little business with tea. But what really motivated him, influenced by his early days, was a concern for the people and their circumstances. He actually was a one-man band charity. Early on, he was particularly um, motivated by support for the chapels, which he was closely associated. And in those days, as probably still the case today, paying off the debt or the cost of building chapels was um, a headache for the people that managed them. He is known for raising the, the funds that paid off the debts for the two chapels that are in Allendale. Um, so if that was a slightly spiritual dimension to his endeavours, it took on a much more practical form by particularly addressing the issue of impure water supplies and um, was instrumental in getting a new water supply which flourishes to this day at Isaac's Well in the marketplace in Allendale. One of the projects of his that I absolutely love is he raised money for a hearse for the Nine Banks area, a horse-drawn hearse, to give people a bit of dignity as they went to their graves. And not only that, but he raised money to build a hearse house where the hearse could be stored and then next to it a stable for the horse. Um, and that is still there, that building is still there and it's now a really brilliant little museum for Isaac's Tea Trail that Roger has put all sorts of interesting relics in and it's a good shelter for walkers as well. We were talking earlier about direct experiences that impact on reasons we, we do things and he makes particular play that his mother and father and brother had all died and were buried at the church at Nine Banks and there wasn't any great ceremony necessarily associated with those who were poor. Maybe that has influenced his own judgment on ensuring that those that came later didn't suffer that same indignity. I would love to have met Isaac Holden. I think he's a really, really interesting character. Um, obviously deeply motivated by caring for his fellow human beings. But I also wonder if there was a bit of an ego in there. He, he seems to have been quite a showman. Um, I think he rather liked being probably a fairly major celebrity in the valleys here. Many a farmhouse kitchen had a photograph of Isaac very prominently uh, set up. He sought the main chance at every opportunity to market or promote what he was about. And he managed to get a photograph taken of him in Hexham about 1854. And one of his wheezes was to sell his image, um, which would have been a bit of a... <laughs> he no sold it. <laughs> he sold it as a novelty for sixpence a cup, along with the image of the Lord of the Manor and his wife... Quite often farms, they had dear old Isaac. He had a thousand of these things printed. I think he sold about 800 or thereabouts. Oh, there you go, yeah. 
the train. Oh, I can see the train just uh, puffing along, the steam train, which we heard right at the beginning of the podcast in the station. It's going up the valley. It's not going uh, very fast, but there again, it's almost going nowhere. I think it goes from, what, Slaggyford now, is it? Uh, it goes from Slaggyford up to Alston and back, to a two-way journey. They have great ambitions. They want to reconnect it with uh, the line at Holtkussel, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. As a, a way of introducing people to this particular valley and this setting, it's a wonderful way for the families to come and enjoy it. It's puffing out some black smoke, <laughs> but it's... Uh, uh, what was it, Roger? What kind of uh, power is it? Uh, biomass. Yeah, they've, they converted it from coal to biomass. Um, and uh, I spoke to one of the locomotive drivers once and he was saying his wife was really glad they'd done that because he used to come home covered in soot from a, a day volunteering here and the biomass is obviously much cleaner. So the elements are moving in. Uh, we've got to get down uh, uh, past the tea room. That is uh, Epi Arkham's lovely tea room full of motorbikes at the moment. We're heading down to the river uh, over the footbridge and uh, Kirchhoff Church, which is a significant moment on the journey. We've had a lovely cup of tea, which is very appropriate, at the Epi Arkham Tea Room, where Elaine Edgar, who with her husband John run the farm and have created this most remarkable phenomenon of Epiarchum heritage. They've created trails around the fort and through the landscape in, over the farm. And we've actually used one of those trails coming down in an easterly direction, direct from the car park. We've come onto the railway line, the single track line, which has a, a path alongside it. What I'm going to do now is ask Roger Rather like Elaine and her team have created their trails, what motivated you? My own motivation is sort of twofold. I've always had a passion and interest for history of why places are the way they are. I'm always very fond of churchyards. I spent an inordinate and probably an unhealthy amount of time stooping <laughs> around them. But I always find um, tombstones for a lazy historian a very good way of sort of summarising the basic details without having to read at length. And certainly the most significant uh, memorial in Allendale churchyard is to this individual, Isaac Holden. When I came across this memorial, it was sort of knee-deep or more in nettles. Um, you had to sort of fight your way there. And in uh, a paragraph, it says words to the effect of this individual made a big difference to this area. And having read that and thought, well, that's, that's quite interesting, bit by bit, the evidence started to come to light. My other passion was um, walking. Actually, I'm conscious of Alfred Wainwright, who came here and most other places that we touched on, and he said, rather than walk my trails, go ahead and create your own. And I thought, you know, I don't necessarily follow every word that Wainwright has to say. But I thought the sentiment of um, creating something that matched two things I was particularly fond of, local history and walking, and um, Isaac did the rest. I've just been the mouthpiece to follow the evidence that he left for somebody to pick up the pieces and join the dots 
together. I think it's a nice celebration of people that tend to be overlooked and are not necessarily the good or the grand of um, the time. Anne, you've been involved with your blog. You've lived in this area for quite a long time. So this is an area you relate to easily and the route actually helps you. I hadn't explored all of what is now Isaac's Tea Trail before I started doing my blog. It's called the short distance approach to long distance walking and my blog is just day walks three four five six miles I think is probably the longest one and I started it in October 2015. The thing about the tea trail is you can bolt onto it all sorts of other walks so you do a bit of the tea trail and then turn it into a circular walk. It's a, it's a necklace with a, with a lots of little trinkets added yeah, onto it. It's like a daisy chain. And that's the um, advantage of a circular walk because there isn't a beginning or an end. There isn't. You can join it anywhere and um, do it clockwise or anti-clockwise. It's 21 years. It's come of age. Uh, there's always issues with paths, and I get the feeling from talking with Roger, the process of keeping it going is not a thing that comes to an end. This is a political matter. The importance of the footpath network, which I'm passionately committed to it, but it's one of the great heritage assets of this country which defines it and there's an element, we take these things possibly for, for granted, the funding for footpaths, certainly in areas that are not national parks or even on national trails and what have you, have suffered over the, the years. And one way or another, that issue needs to be addressed more actively than it has been. So uh, I should say that Roger is out constantly, constantly checking... The, the way markers, the rights of way, the styles and so on. And if you're walking on the tea trail with him, he'll sometimes open his pack and take out a billhook and start chopping down the nettles <laughs> because they happen to be on the way. Um, or, you know, you hear tales of him walking up the fells with a, a pot of yellow paint to mark the posts more clearly. 37 miles long, Roger, it must have at least one spot where your mind often longs to be. I could say it varies, depends on the time of the year, who I'm with and how I feel. But in, in, to your question, it's definitely the Mohawk Valley, which is Isaac's birthplace, and it follows the Mohawk Burn to the small church at Nine Banks, and it's just amazing. It's got that tranquility, and I think above all else, in a changing world, there's a degree of stability and certainty. You can understand why W.H. Auden said of it, this area was Britain's best place. And Anne? I agree with Roger. The Moab Valley is lovely, really lovely. Another favourite section is Keenley Chapel into Allendale, where you're walking alongside the East Allen River, and that's through woodland, which is nice after a lot of open land. And Monk Wood near Whitfield, that's a really nice oak wood that's fantastic um, so they would be among my favorites although I mean I've done every section now dozens of times over the years I never ever ever get bored they're all absolutely delightful and um, perhaps my main favorite is all the cafes to be honest there's always a good coffee or a tea within mm, a few miles so yeah. it's um, it's something to aim for. It's convivial as well as culturally exciting. It is, yes. And the fact you don't see a lot of tourists, you see locals. 
you don't see many tourists at all and, and rarely do you see locals to be honest so my friends um, who walk with me we've become known as Isaac's tea ladies because we're just <laughs> we're going along as a, as a little gang of four five or six people calling into the nearest cafe how would you explain what this landscape represents what is its character the North Pennines is very distinctive, and I call Isaac's Tea Trail North Pennines in a nutshell because you get a little snippet of all the different kinds of scenery that you will see around the North Pennines. So you get, you get high moorland, grouse moor, um, you get fantastic hay meadows um, being carefully grown specifically for wildflowers, um, and then you've got the woodland as well, uh, farmland, and little villages and hamlets, yeah, and very much a working landscape as well, very much farmed or forested. Um, over, over many generations in a distinct way. Unlike uh, lowland England where it's all cropped with ploughed and so forth, this is very pastoral. Yes, and you learn to read it and, and see the different layers of the, the different types of farming, different settlements, that kind of a thing. And also it's different in every season as well. Is it Allendale Town where they have the tar barrel? They do on New Year's Eve, yes. <laughs> now that's intimidating. <laughs> that is, yes. <laughs> well, just perchance as we're recording beside the railway, a youngish couple have come along with the most enormous rucksacks on their backs. And my instinct is, well, you must be doing the Pennine Way, but perhaps not. Can you tell me your names and what you're engaged in? Yeah, my, my name's Ryan Archer. I'm Diane Levine. And, um, we're walking from John O'Groats, so the John O'Groats sign, all the way down to Land's End uh, via the Pennine Way at the moment. We come down the main trail, so the John O'Groats Trail, uh, the Great Glen, and then the West Highland Way, and then we did like a bit of the John Murr Trail, and we sort of linked up a few others, uh, the St Cuthbert's Way, onto the Pennine Way, and then uh, we're going to get onto Offers Dyke, and then we're going to carry on a bit of the coast path, but then we're going to do Devon coast to coast. How far into the journey are you now in days, and how many miles to go? We just calculated this at the delightful tea room, on the Pennine Way, which is amazing, an old train coach station. Highly recommended, but we calculated we've done about 530 miles, and today is Sunday, so it is four weeks and one day in. And I think it's approximately 1,200 altogether, maybe 1,150. So we have 700, 650 to go. Nearly halfway, aren't we? Nearly halfway now. In terms of all the trails you walked, what was the Pennine Way to you? Has it meant special things to you? Um, it's been really, really tough. The John O'Groats Trail was a bit rugged, and the other trails we've done are quite easy walking. But yeah, since we got on the Pennine Way, the weather's turned. It's really rainy, really windy. It's really tough going. And the space in between the towns and the resupplies are quite big. Um, on this part of the trail. So uh, yeah, it's been quite tough, but I've been enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. So we were lucky enough to be doing the top bit when the spine race was coming through, which is an epic race that does the whole of the Pennine Way in about six, seven days. Um, it's ridiculous. <laughs> we were on a section when we literally got like the Mamma Mia song, Thunderbolts and Lightning. And we were going one way and two walkers were coming the other way and we just met them. And you could just look in your face that like both of you have just been through something that you're like, we need to dismantle our poles because we're on the top of a mountain and there's a crazy lightning storm. That was really scary because we were about 400 meters up and the lightning and thunder was right above us. Yeah. We just didn't know what to do other than just to put your head down and, and just walk. And the rain was, I've not seen rain like that in a long, long time. It was really heavy. 
heavy rain and, and hail as well. The Pennine Way is special because you like it's the original and you really come to realize that it's really amazing that we have time for recreation to enjoy the great outdoors these days. What people wanted in the 20s and 30s was a great long green trail. Anybody who undertakes such an endeavor, there has to be a motivation. Um, I think for me it's just a challenge. Uh, I like the simplicity of long distance through hiking. Um, you just sort of get up, you walk, you look for food, you get your water, and it's very simple. But for me personally, I love being immersed in nature. I'm quite a keen bird watcher. Um, I just like being in nature every day for sort of a couple of months. It's very special for me. So I guess also uh, being in nature, but then you have days like this where it's blustery in your face and definitely the Pennine Way recommendation do not do what we're doing north to south yes. definitely the prevailing, the prevailing winds. winds is not just for canoeists and those on the water <laughs> do it from south to north um, but we did escape the Pennine Way down to the South Tyne Trail which literally for the first time in a few <laughs> days when I climbed down past the aqueduct I just found myself taking deep breaths and going ah out the wind <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a tough morning in headwinds, yeah. Your destiny for tonight, you're camping, are you? Uh, so yeah, we're wild camping, um, so we're going to get to Alston, go past, and we'll probably camp before Gary Gill. We've wild camped every single night apart from one night so far. The pit stop is another highlight of the Pennine Way, which is maybe four or five miles before Bellingham and it's 24 hours open on a farm and you can go in there have cake toilet showers you can do camping and it's all just like a honesty box kind of recommended thing so yeah the pit stop is amazing we don't actually know the name of that farm but the pit stop five miles before Bellingham is can, can you imagine life without walking now, no, because you just get so bored being inside, like for a few months, no, no. No, I love it, I love it. I mean, if, if I couldn't walk, I'd find another challenge. Well, all I can say is, fantastic what you've done. I'm hugely envious, but I wish you all the best in getting to Land's End, and I'm sure it won't be at Land's walking end. It seems like it's ingrained in your spirit. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Awesome, thanks. That was a lovely walk down off the railway track with Isaac's Tea Trail, down through the meadows and over the bridge, which is a quite startling structure. How long has it been there, Roger? Two years. Two years? Two it's years. a lovely feature. It must have been very well constructed because the river, as you can see by the width of it, uh, can get uh, great volumes of uh, water in the South Tyne. We've come across the meadows and come to this remarkable church at Kirkhuff. It's a, a quite a distinctive church with a very slender spire and a substantial roof. It's in a, a modest graveyard set in the meadows, and it's got the most remarkable dedication. Dedicated by the vicar, Reverend Octavius James, to the Holy Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's represented by the symbols of doves. There's nine of them that are seen within the church, which is uh, an exercise in itself to discover where they are. I noticed there were doves in St Augustine's as well when we started. Oh. Its um, particular interest is um, the Reverend Octavius James, who at that period in the mid-19th century was when um, interest in 
things Germanic, particularly associated with Victoria's marriage to Prince Albert and so on, meant that was the go-to place for cultural and other interests. And when Octavius James and his wife, on their honeymoon, they went to Germany or Bavaria, and he was sufficiently impressed by the architecture of the German churches in that area that when he came back here, he um, decided to build a church, the pencil-like um, spire. It didn't appeal to Wainwright. He described it as an um, inverted umbrella. <laughs> you can see what he, what he meant by that. It'd be a good moment uh, to take a little look inside. unusual there's a fireplace directly opposite as you come in so a place of gathering uh, a very open nave and the elevated chancel and this place did actually have a relevance to the story of Isaac Holden this is where Isaac married his um, love and Telfer. In 1834, there were very few attending this registration, so, and so it must have been quite a humble event. Anne Telfer was working at Castlenook Farm um, as a, a maid or a dairy maid or whatever, and of course uh, Isaac would have been around here peddling his tea, and uh, no doubt chatting her up on the doorstep, so uh, we know they formed a connection there. Um, whether they actually walked down the field we've just walked to get to this church on their wedding day, I don't know, but I talked to a train driver on the railway line and he remembers a wedding party that he drove the train for. So they got on Alston, the entire wedding party, and the train was all done out in ribbons and so on. Um, and they stopped at, at Kirkhoff up the hill from this church and everyone got off, the bride and groom and everybody, and walked down that nice grassy hill that we've just done and over the river. Um, and the bride was wearing special white Wellingtons. She had her wedding Wellingtons on. And then they had the service here in this lovely, lovely church. And then the whole party walked back up the hill and got back up on the train and went back into Alston and he was so thrilled to take part in that the train driver and and he said he was really glad they had the Green Dragon locomotive on that day because it's the biomass fueled locomotive and there was no soot on the bride's dress. We're coming towards the end of our walk strictly in context with Isaac Holden in terms of coming to the end of his working life and actual life have you got a, a picture of that? It's a slightly sad end of life. Um, he suffered some sort of seizure, and quite frankly, I think I'll put it down to overwork and stress. It's impressive to objectively look at all the various things that he did, but he literally went from one project to another. And at the same time, he was putting bread on the table for his family. He had two young daughters and his wife, so ill health seemed to have overtaken him. He died and was highly regarded, and hence the tribute that's um, paid to him in the Allendale churchyard. And, um, you know, he was clearly well regarded at the time. And he was also blessed by the fact that his wife was equally committed to the causes which he was associated with and was a very able partner. And um, she ensured that the charities and other things uh, continued. I think the dedication on his memorial, which um, you can find in the Allendale churchyard of St Cuthbert's, 
says it all. And whoever devised it in the first place, um, I think it stood the test of time. In memory of Isaac Holden, a native of this parish, who died November the 12th, 1857, aged 51 years. He gained the esteem and respect of the public by his untiring diligence in originating works of charity and public usefulness. Upwards of 600 persons subscribed to erect this monument. Journey's end. We are back in Alston. Brutally windy at the moment, isn't it? But we have escaped the wet weather, which is a delight. The walk itself? Well, it's lovely, lovely. landscape. Yeah. Uh, I've walked the Pennine Way before through to Epi Arkham and beyond, so I know that well. And I have been on this eastern side of the river uh, by Kirkhove. Yeah, I'd never been to the far side of uh, the river before. I'd always looked over there from walking the Pennine Way and um, thought, God, that looks lovely. It's very kind of verdant over there, isn't it? It's uh, wonderful. So nice to see that. Uh, fascinating to hear about this gent who rose from these yeah, very humble beginnings to become this central figure in the community, a very happily married man who raised a huge amount for all these kind of projects. Yeah, uh, he felt very much connected with the community throughout his life. What I have to say is I think Roger himself deserves a special mention because he's rather after the spirit of Tom Stevenson creating the Pennine Way. He's recognised here more particularly the human landscape and has carried that concept which actually has legs. Agree with that, Mark. And they've got a lovely guidebook that's written about this trail and obviously Anne's blog posts. Our regular housekeeping. We are on episode number 83. 83. For 82 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, at Countrystride 1, Facebook and Twitter. We do put up various bits and bobs uh, in the lulls between broadcasts, including, I think, one of our most interactive posts so far, which was simply a tractor gathering hay. Anyway, people seem to like it. 25,000 impressions, that's quite some. And you'd put up a picture of my neighbour, Ian Hartland, who we might at some point try and get on. Um, very well known in tractor circles, or maybe classic machinery circles particularly in the Threlkeld area. If you like what we do on Country Stride and you would like to support us, uh, we do this because we're supported by a growing group of people and we very much appreciate you. Uh, but there are three ways to do it. You can share this podcast with family and friends, particularly those who love walking, who love Cumbria, who love the lakes. You can buy any one of our small boutique collection of guidebooks, which have a country stride heart and soul if you like what we do on these podcasts and you would like some fabulous walks around the lake district then um, www.countrystride.co.uk ultimately we will venture into doing a guidebook in the pennines you never know and the third way that you can support us is via patreon for as little as two pounds a month you can send us a little bit of money our way to help us with uh, fuel costs and server costs and the like you can do that via 
our website as well, countrystride.co.uk. And this fortnight we are thanking the following people, Ian Mottram, Alison Pickering, John McGibbon, Mike Killingly, Ollie Brown and C. White. don't know what the C is, but C. White, thank you very much as well. Uh, we've got one little note, actually. This is a request from one of our previous guests, Matt Sowerby, who you may remember, Mark, from our oh, God, Young uh, People of Cumbria podcast. In our 50th episode. Well, that's right. Matt's putting on... Um, I mean, w- what a chap, really, but he's instigated the Kirby Lonsdale Poetry Festival. It's taking place in August. It's actually features other guests that we've had, including Jamie Normington um, and Tess Pike, who I think is going to be on a future episode, probably. That's in August. So if you want to know more about Matt's fabulous-looking festival, kirbylonsdalepoetry.co.uk is where you go for that. That's it, I think, for housekeeping. Oh, no, there's one other very important bit of information, which is we have our first event, Mark, coming up. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Meeting up in Stickle Barn in Langdale, I believe. Is that true? I hope that's it. Yes, Stickle Barn in October, Great Langdale, for a kind of day of walks, chats, country stride bonhomie, I think is how we're we're framing it. But tickets will go on sale at some point and we'll give first dibs on people who either support us via Patreon or anyone signed up for our newsletter which you can do again same website countrystride.co.uk we're very much looking forward to that we have done a few little eventy things where we get to meet listeners and it's great fun isn't it oh god it's quite remarkable you feel a part of the family that's it it's a, it's a slightly dysfunctional family but we're, <laughs> we're all still talking so that's good Right, okay, that's our trip today, Mark. I think we've got some good ones coming up. I think we're seeing Douglas Chalmers, uh, outgoing chief exec of Friends of the Lake District. We've got Beatrix Potter. We've got... Meadows. Hey, Meadows. Hey, Meadows. Oh, gosh. The world's is our oyster. Anyway, for today, we're saying goodbye from Alston, this um, wonderful world apart. Thank you very much for joining us on Country Stride, and we will see you next.